Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm Martin and joining me this week, I have author James Swallow. James, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No worries, mate. I was really excited about this book when I heard about it. So I wanted to get you on to talk about Star Trek The Dark Veil. What can you tell me about it? I could give you the blurb or I can just give you sort of, I'll give you, you know, let's not do that. Let's not give you the, the blurb because I give the blurb to everybody. <laughs> right? I'll just do the, I'll do the, uh, my, my kind of, how can I describe it? My, my sort of pocket review of the thing. It's, so it's a, it's a book in the Star Trek Picard series. So it's following on from the TV show, which, you know, started airing last year. And what we're doing with a lot of these new Star Trek novels now is because the con... Oh, I'm so sorry, my phone's just tiring. Can we, can right. we stop? No, yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries. Let me just get that, sorry. Are you kidding me? Listen, can you hear this? Due to that, your internet and telephone line may be disconnected. <laughs> uh, it's one of those goddamn robocalls. Oh, oh, I get those all the time. Will you just leave me alone? I know what it is. I, I, I tend to get these things like about like around about midday or, or like one o'clock. And I haven't had one for like six months, and now all of a sudden they just phoning me up every <laughs> single day. I'm so sorry. That's terribly unprofessional. Oh, no, really. no, it's fine. It happens. Listen, I was about to interview someone once, and the phone rang, and stupidly I panicked, and I turned my microphone down instead of the <laughs> instead of getting the phone. So the guest was like, I can barely hear you. This is a very bad line. And I just didn't think in the panic. I, I just wasn't thinking properly. But I get these calls all the time. I get the people telling me I've had an accident. I always tell them that it was my fault that I was trying to open a can of beer whilst changing the CD. It's like, yeah, it's like I was trying to kill that guy. That's what I was doing. <laughs> they hang up instantly. <laughs> I had a conversation with one with an actual person one time, actually. Some, young, some young guy called me up and he was saying like, oh, you know, you've got this problem with your internet. And I said to him, I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, do you like your job? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. I said, do you, you're okay with this? You're okay with, like, stealing money from people? And I said, what would your parents say? And I did that kind of, like, you know, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Mm. And, and I kind of dadded him. And I, was <laughs> like, and I was like, I was like, you know, talking to other, what would I do if this was my son? And I was like, so I'm kind of, you know, this is, you know, you're, you sound like a good boy. Couldn't you get a better job? Do you feel good about this, taking money from people like your mother and my father? And then you kind of like, oh, okay, and you put the phone down. There's a great um, YouTube channel called Trilogy Media. They basically bait scammers. So they call them up and they just waste their time because they're feeling as if they're wasting their time, they're not scamming anyone. Yeah. Uh, but they have a couple of um, scammers have got to know them and they've helped a few scammers escape. Like they've fundraised them some money to launch their own business and a couple of them have gone legit and it's really interesting because they also interview the ones they help and there are people in those call centers that legitimately think they work for microsoft wow yeah that's that's crazy yeah i i, I saw that uh, one recently where it was they were talking about a thing that's happening in the u.s where people call up and tell you they've kidnapped a member of your family and a this friend of mine had that this is apparently a thing it was apparently it was like it was it was, it was really big in south america is that is they would get criminals on criminals in, in prison would get phones smuggled into them and these are the guys doing the calling because what else are they going to be doing all day right and <laughs> and they call up and say you know we've, we've got your we've got your daughter or something and i'm like crying out loud that just sounds terrible yeah my friend they said daddy's grandmother he was like well which one because we buried her in 1979 so even if she wasn't dead <laughs> you dug her up you bastard <laughs> let's do the unit let's never this let's, let's get back to where we were so star trek picard Star Trek Picard. Let me tell you about Star Trek. So Star Trek Picard, The Dark Veil, uh, is a novel 
It's a tie into the television series. The storyline centers on the characters of Will Riker and Deanna Troy rather than uh, Jean Luc Picard himself. You know, you, we saw them turn up in the show. If if, if you watch the series, you saw them yeah. turn up in the episode Nepenthe, and then Riker turns up uh, at the end to kind of save the day of that season. And there's a little bit of reference in those episodes to what Troy and Riker were doing before all of these events took place. So the Dark Vale is is kind of getting into that. And it's set a year after Picard resigned from Starfleet, which you, you saw in a flashback in episode, and several years before uh, they retire from Starfleet, which is what you see in the episode Nepenthe. And it's set aboard the, the USS Titan, which is uh, kind of established as, as Riker's ship in uh, Star Trek Nemesis. And it's also appeared in a series of uh, spin-off novels, as a, a Star Trek Titan series. But this is kind of in a separate continuity because you've got the sort of book continuity of the Titan novels and then you've got like the new TV series continuity of Picard. So there's some similarities, but it's kind of two different streams of storytelling. And in this story, what happens is the Titan is drawn into an incident on the, the Romulan Federation border where enigmatic alien species comes into this uh, situation. They have a, they have a big, big problem with their ship. A Titan turns up to assist them and a Romulan starship also appears as well also offering help to this Mayday mission. And so what you have is these two ships from two different sides in non-aligned space with another alien species with their set of problems as well. And all of the kind of politics and issues between the Federation and the Romulans, which have been a very big part of the narrative of Picard, come to a head with these two starship captains on either side who have to find a common ground in order to solve the problem that's in front of them. How did you come to be involved with this? Well, I've been writing Star Trek novels now for, for quite a while. I mean, my kind of Star Trek origin story is, is pretty, my Star Trek origin story is pretty much my writer origin story, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's before I was um, setting the Wayback Machine a little bit here, right? Before I was uh, a prose writer, I used to write for entertainment magazines and I wrote for, for the official Star Trek magazine as well. So I used to write these features about the, the, the TV shows and making ofs and stuff like that. And I was always fascinated by the idea of of how to be a writer on a sci-fi show, right? So I would often do the interviews with with the writers on on Star Trek and I kind of learn a lot from them. And eventually that got me the opportunity to pitch a story idea for Star Trek. And I pitched for Star Trek Voyager, which was the show that was airing at the time. And I managed to make two sales, two story ideas, sell two story ideas to the show, which eventually got turned into episodes. So that was kind of like my very, very first credit right at the very beginning of my of my writing career. And after that, I came back and I, I decided to do sort of less magazine work. I wanted to do something with a bit more permanence to it. So I wanted to start writing novels. And it just seemed like a logical thing. It's like, well, I love Star Trek, you know, and I, I've got this Star Trek credit here. I wonder if I could do Star Trek fiction because Star Trek time fiction has been around for forever. And I did a couple of short stories and that got me kind of, that was like my audition gig there. And that got me onto doing Star Trek novels. And so for over the last sort of like 10 years, every couple of years, I've been just been doing a Star Trek novel. And... One of the writers on Star Trek Picard, the writer and producer, and also on, on Discovery, is Kirsten Beyer. And Kirsten was also a Star Trek novelist. She did uh, a Star Trek Voyages ongoing series. But before she kind of stepped up to working on the TV show, she and I kind of like worked together in, in under the same sort of, in the same kind of stable as uh, Star Trek writers. So when Star Trek Discovery was coming down the pipe, because that show has a very sort of tight continuity and it's kind of difficult to just insert a story in between episodes like you could do with like, you know, some of the other Star Trek shows. She was the person on the show whose job it was to make sure that all of the tines married up. So she invited me on to do uh, Star Trek Discovery time, which was a story called Fear Itself. And then when Picard came down, she said, well, you know, would you want to do uh, a Picard story for us as well? So 
I was brought on board very early in for the for the series, you know, going to see the scripts and all the material and everything like that and getting all this kind of stuff sent to me, which was all super hush hush, you know, with having to sign my life away with the CBS ninjas to make sure <laughs> that I could I couldn't say anything to anybody, right? And initially we were actually talking about doing uh, a story about Seven of Nine who is uh, another important sort of Trek character who appears in, in Star Trek Picard. And she's, she's got some cool stuff that she does, and there's a, some interesting backstory hinted at in the episodes that she appeared in. And we talked a lot about devising that narrative. But as the show went on, and this is one of the problems kind of when you're writing a tie-in novel alongside an ongoing series, which is building itself as you're doing it, they kind of decided that, you know, this story idea is really cool. It's something we want to do maybe on the show rather than actually kind of put it in a novel where maybe less people are going to see it because the, you know, the percentage of readers of, of the Trek novels obviously is not as big as the number of people who are watching the TV show. So we looked at a number of other ideas and some of the other sort of plot elements that had been hinted at but we hadn't really seen described was one was talking about what happened to Worf, who became uh, captain of the Enterprise after um, Picard resigned from Starfleet. And what happened to Riker and De- Riker and Troy? And I thought Riker and Troy had always been two of my favorite characters uh, on The Next Generation. And I said, you know, it feels like those are characters I would really like to tell a story about. So that's how we, we decided to take that direction. And that's kind of pretty much the, the evolution of, of how The Dark Vale came to be. How much involvement did the showrunners have with your writing process? You know, it depends on the franchise. I mean, I've worked on a lot of different, what we call IPs, right? Intellectual properties. Sometimes... They, they straight up don't give a damn and it will be like, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. You know, some some IP companies are, you know, they, they treat the books in the same way they would treat like a mug or a T-shirt. It's like, oh, it doesn't, we don't care. Just get it out of there. It's an ancillary product. You know, do whatever you like. Other companies are very, very hot on this kind of stuff and they, they want to, you know, dot every I and cross every T and, you know, you have a lot more hoops to jump through because you have to make sure that you're, you're not just right. You, you don't just have to write a decent book that your editor and your publisher likes. You also got like 20 or 30 other people at the, at the, uh, the, the IP holder who are going, well, you know, we want to make sure you get all these points right. We want to make sure you get all the continuity correct and all this kind of thing. And it can vary from one end to the other. With the Star Trek books, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. The, you know, they, they do keep a very sort of strong eye on this kind of thing. But because I'm, you know, I'm a professional Star Trek nerd, basically, you know, I know a lot of this stuff anyway. So they, they trust me. They know I'm not going to change stuff and then I'm not going to kind of get in there and mess everything up. I, I know kind of how to write Star Trek. I know the tone and the texture of it. So I'm not going to kind of color outside the lines right but at the same time they want to you know they want to kind of have a, a sort of like hand on my shoulder going well we want to steer you this way you know avoid that sort of story but tell this kind of story and with an ongoing show you've got that you've got an extra level of stuff to deal with because of course everything you do you serve at the pleasure of the series right so what we do has to be subordinate to what's happening on the TV series. So if they do something on the TV show that contradicts what you want to do, it's like, okay, you have to go with it. You can't argue about it. You, you, you have to follow what the series, you have to follow the lead that the series takes. And quite often you don't have much of a to and fro. You know, the people making this stuff will occasionally say, don't do this. And you say, well, why? It's like, we're not going to tell you why. Just don't do this. <laughs> don't, don't do thing, you know? I, I, I remember once I was working for, for Big Finish on a Doctor Who story and it was going to be it was going to be a Doctor Who it was going to be Paul McGann it was going to be a war, war story I had two two warring Doctor Who classic Doctor Who races and it was going to be this big Starship Trooper style kind of thing we'd gone quite a long way down the, the, the way of producing this and then right at the very end suddenly Cardiff went no you can't do this uh. and they just pulled the plug and it was like well why not and they're like well, you can't do it 
and there was never any explanation until about like a year later when an episode came out which had those two species having a fight. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's that's and that's why you decided you wanted to do that on the show, and you didn't want an audio drama coming out around the same time doing the same thing but different. Yeah, and it can be annoying, but at the same time, it's part of the job. If you take on the job of working as a tie-in writer, you have to accept that this is part and parcel of it. You have to accept that, you know, you may get changes in that you don't like, <laughs> but you have to accept it. With the Star Trek stuff, with, with um, Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Discovery, it's been different. It's been a very different experience from pretty much every other time I've worked on because the connection, the, the sort of the back and forth with CBS has been amazing. Because normally we, we just don't get the kind of access that we were getting for this. I've only ever had it once before, and that was when I was doing a tie-in for the TV show 24, when they were doing the, the last season of that, when they did 24 Live Another Day, and I was doing a tie-in that was set before that. And they gave me you know, all the scripts and everything and all well, as much material as I needed. And with this, uh, on the Star Trek shows, we're getting to see the scripts for episodes, multiple drafts of the scripts as well, so you're seeing kind of the way the story's evolving. So if stuff gets cut out of TV episodes, we're going like, well, could we, that bit that you cut out there, could we put that in the book? Because, you know, maybe we could still have this little bit of dialogue to sort of show that this little element, element is, is not completely lost. And we're, we're having com conversation, and it's a two-way street as well, is that we're, we're saying, well, you know, here's some stuff that we did in the book. Do you want to maybe feed that into episodes that you're writing just recently i'm watching you know the last few episodes of star trek discovery and there was there's an episode where they they find a, a kelpian starship and you know which is the species that belongs to the, the sorry yeah sorry right? and he's walking around the ship and he's looking at different items in the ship and he refers to a couple of things that i had created with kirsten Bayer for the novel fear itself where he talks oh, about brilliant. kind of just just tiny little kind of cultural references. It's like, oh, we invented that for the book, but it's folded back into the TV series. So it really feels like these things are, are like truly cross-connecting. That's great for the fans that keep up with everything as well, because they will pick up on that, whereas somebody who just watches the series won't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I always find like the, the best sort of continuity kisses are like when you say, you put something in there, and if, you're, if, if it's like a kind of deep cut joke, you kind of go, oh, you know? Whereas if you don't see it, it doesn't really pull you out of it. Yeah. You know, I always think of like the, you know, the, the fight club nod where you kind of look at the guy and go, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, yeah, you and me, you and me, we, we got this thing, we got this thing. Right. And that's, and that's what I think the best sort of continuity references is like the, the author saying to the, the diehard fan, but you and me, yeah, we know what this means. You know, this is something between us. It's just a little in joke, but the casual reader isn't going to feel like, well, what, what's that all about? Why is there a five page description of this thing that doesn't mean anything to me? <laughs> that's the kind of continuity. That's, that's when it becomes kind of like continuity porn where it pulls you out of the story just for the sake of, of kind of referencing something. You wrote one of my favorite big finish audios actually. Oh really? Um, Which one was that? Yeah, it was old soldiers. Oh, thank you, man. Oh, that's really nice. I love oh, that. I it's got that. one of my favorite lines that's ever been in Doctor Who, and I'm probably going to mess it up. It's when the brigadier says, there are old soldiers and bold soldiers, but there are very few old, bold old, soldiers. Bold soldiers. Yeah. I love that and line. That really I, resonated oh, with me. I, I have to be honest with you, man. I ripped that off from somebody else. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's a homage. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's, um, you know, the movie The Black Hole? Yes. There's a scene in that where one of the one of the characters says there are old pilots and bold pilots, but there are very few old bold pilots. And I just uh, thought that's such a great such a great line. So I have to admit I ripped that off. It's fine, but it's fine. That's one of um, that's a career highlight. You know, I mean, working with the brig. 
that was oh. just so cool. You know, Nicholas Courtney's what a what a absolute top chap, real real gentleman. You know, and that was that was him and and Toby Longworth was the voice actor, and Toby Longworth's a terrific voice actor too. Just the three or four of us, I think Nick Bridge, I think David Richardson was there, I think like, Nigel Fares, I think might have directed it. It was such a long time ago now, and we were in this little converted townhouse <laughs> that had been turned into a to a studio, and just and sitting there and doing it. But I remember. This is that Courtney walks into the room and I, I had a kind of, I was absolutely starstruck for a moment. He just came over and went, hello. And I was just sitting in my chair and went, oh, hello. <laughs> for a moment, I couldn't get up. And I was like, mm, be professional. I got up and shook his hand. And I was like, wow. You know, but such a, such a lovely chap. Is uh, yeah, real career highlight to have, to got to have worked with him. You've written for many different mediums. Is that an active decision you made to try and diversify your career or did it just sort of happen to you? I just, I just like to work, you know, it's, I, <laughs> I know some people who just do like one kind of thing, people who like, you know, there's one guy who's a playwright, somebody else I know works just primarily in video games, other people who just do novels. And I think, well, there's, there's all these different cool ways to write stuff. Why would you want to limit yourself? I look at the skill set that I bring to each different kind of writing as I often talk about the tools, tools in my toolbox, right? So it's like, you need a spanner for this, but you need a screwdriver for that, right? And I think every, every time you work in a particular medium, so if you're writing, let's say, audio drama, there's a set of tools that you have to bring to that because that's what you need to write that sort of stuff. And there's a different set of tools that you'd need if you were writing a short story or a comic book or a long-form novel or a video game, right? And some of them cross over because after all, it's all writing, right? At the end of the day, it's all storytelling. But there are certain tools that don't cross over. And I think developing the skills in each one of these styles of writing eventually make, just makes you a better writer because you can take what you learn in one and you can bring it across to the other. So, like, I, I write a series of sort of modern-day um, action thrillers, and a lot of what I learned from working in video games about kind of how you keep a, a pace of narrative and how you keep kind of people engaged in an action story, I folded into writing my prose thrillers in the same way that the work I, I did on audio dramas, which is obviously – you know, it's all audio. It's all sort of storytelling without the pictures. A lot of that sort of radio style of writing, I folded into writing video games because in video games, a lot of the narrative is delivered to you through dialogue and not necessarily through sort of like, you know, visuals. So all of these skill sets all sort of cross connect. And I think in the end, it's made me a better writer and it kind of stops me from getting bored as well. Because if I think if I had to do the same thing year in and year out, after a while, I'd get a bit stale. I guess you're also introducing a new kind of format to a reader of an existing property say somebody only ever reads books and they don't play video games you're probably bringing in a new style of writing that they might not be familiar with yeah hopefully as is i like to try and vary stuff up i mean i find every sort of like five or ten years i stop and look at my career and go well, what haven't i done if i don't or you know am i getting too comfortable how do i push myself out of my comfort zone you know how do i let's take on a challenge that's a little bit different it's just like a great example from, from last year. In 2020, I worked on my first VR video game. Previously, just I'd worked on kind of conventional regular games where you use like a regular controller. But with a VR system, I was thinking it's going to be difficult to tell a story if you're the first, if it's all first person and you don't you don't have a character who communicates with other characters in the story. Every all the dialogue has to kind of come to you, so it's all people talk to you, but you don't talk to them. And how does that affect the narrative when you can't sort of cut away to cut scenes when it's all sort of all locked into a first person perspective? How do you tell a narrative in that way? And immediately I was like, I want to take this project on just to sort of push myself into a situation where I can't use some of the 
cliches and props that maybe I got away with in previous things. And I find that, you know, that was really a lot of fun to do. Excellent. Do you have any plans to adapt the Mark Dane series to like TV or film? Well, we've, we've been talking about it. Unfortunately, again, sort of like COVID and the lockdowns kind of put a sort of like kibosh on pretty much most of what Hollywood is doing these days. I mean, yeah. we've been having some, some serious discussions about it at the beginning of 2020, but all of that has just kind of gone into suspension. So where we go from here right now, I honestly don't have an answer for it. But yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. Uh, it would be really, really fun to sort of get the Mark Dane stories up there on the big screen. I think I, I, I definitely write them in a very sort of cinematic style because those sort of movies, uh, I love them, right? So so definitely is kind of coming out there. But it, if that doesn't happen, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I didn't sort of start writing the Mark Dane series because I wanted to sell a movie version of it. I just I did it because it's the kind of style of writing I hadn't done before and something I really, really enjoy. So my primary focus is, well, what's the next Mark Dane novel going to be and how do I keep these stories fresh and how do I keep people interested? But if we get uh, a movie or a TV deal, obviously that would be awesome. It's such an interesting character as well because he's the guy in the van that becomes the spy. I don't think I've seen that before. Well, that was my kind of reaction to to uh, a lot of the the sort of the, the, the heroes that I like is I have the thing I always call the, the 3JB theory, which is James Bond, Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, right? Is most thriller heroes can fit into one of those categories so the your james bond hero is the guy who's very suave and sophisticated and can kind of like you know talk the pants off anybody and charm his way in and out of situations then your jason Bourne hero is the one who's kind of cool clinical almost sort of like mechanical robotic computer mind sort of type guy and then your jack bauer guy is the guy who kicks down the door and beats the crap out of people right and tortures them <laughs> to an inch of their life to find out what you know so most heroes will fall into one of those categories and they approach things in a different way but the thing they all have in common is that they're kind of these bulletproof teflon heroes and they never really feel like they're in serious danger because they're all really super competent and they're good at their jobs and that is fun right don't get me wrong it is cool to see competence porn right these guys come in and they're awesome at what they do but i thought the hero i'm interested in is the guy who kind of has to run to keep up a little bit the guy who's he has to work for it a little bit. And I always go back to, I talk about Indiana Jones and John McClane, right? The two I always talk about is they're both good at their jobs, but they're not the best at their jobs. They're not the toughest guy in the room. They're not, they don't have the greatest quip. They're not the fastest with a gun, right? They're always kind of having to be a, put a bit of effort behind it. And when they get to the end of their stories, they're, they're, they've been beaten up. They're kind of bloody but unbowed, but they still come through at the end. And I think... They earn their victories much more than the kind of bulletproof guys do. And Mark Dane is very much that kind of guy. I wanted somebody who has to work hard. You know, he's, he's always just a little bit out of his depth. And I think that's much more interesting. The idea of the trope of the guy in the van. I mean, how many times have we seen that, right? You've always got the dude. <laughs> you've got the door kicker and the trigger puller, right? The guy who's going inside shooting and stuff, and he's on the radio, and there's a guy in the van going, okay, there should be three guys on the other side of that door. He's like, okay, I'm going in. You know, hack the drone. And then the other guy's doing the gunfight, right? And I thought the interesting idea was what if you took the guy who was in the van and you, you, you just tear him out of there, you pull him out of his comfort zone, and you make him do the other guy's job. And that was the sort of genesis of those two sort of ideas. That was the genesis of the Mark Dane character. Do you feel a little bit freer when you're writing your own universe as opposed to like stepping into someone else's with Star Trek? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's weird. People often say to me, you know, what one do you prefer? And I say, well, you know, it isn't a case of of liking one better over the other because they they have their own sort of unique set of challenges. You know, if you're writing something based in somebody else's universe, you've got a lot more rules to follow and you've got a much bigger weight of expectation because people know those characters and that world and they're like, you don't do this right, you know, we're going to tell you about it. So you have to make a lot more people happy. But you also get a kind of degree of freedom because people do know those well. So it's easier to kind of get into those stories and you've got a guaranteed audience who are immediately going to come to you because you're writing about a world that they already know and they love. So you've got the, the sort of the positive on that side and the negative on the other. When writing your own stuff, you've got that complete freedom to create characters and go to places and nobody's looking over your shoulder and telling you how to do it, which is really great. But it's also super daunting as well because you don't, you're working without a safety net. And, and if you do screw it up and people don't like it, they're going to tell you. So you have to have a completely different set of criteria if you're writing something that's completely new and original because you've got to build that from the ground up out of whole cloth. And it's a completely different challenge, both of which, you know, both challenges I think are equally exciting and equally fun to do, but they pull in two totally different directions. I guess the advantage of writing an existing IP is that you've got reference points you can go back you can listen to picard's speech patterns and hear in your mind how he would deliver a line and i guess when you're creating your own universe you don't have that yeah absolutely you know you you can absolutely do that and say well you know read read the material whatever the whatever the source material might be right go back and look at it and say well this is the sense of the world this is the sort of texture of it that's the key thing about doing ip is you have to make it it has to feel right and it's really hard to kind of quantify that it's one of those things where you know it when it's wrong you know, if, if you if you have a story like, you know, let's say you're writing a Doctor Who story, right? You you know, if it doesn't feel right, if you hear a character talking, you go, oh, I don't think the doctor would ever talk like that. You know, he would never have that conversation or, you know, they would never do this sort of thing in an episode of Doctor Who. And it just doesn't feel like it connects. Whereas on the other hand, you know, you're creating your own stuff. You are the one who decides what the tone is. You decide what direction it's going to go in. What was it like transitioning from being a journalist to writing fiction? Well, I... The, I, I do miss those days. I've got to be honest. I do miss being a journalist, being able to do some cool stuff. I've 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 done some really fun things. You know, I've been to see a whole bunch of my favourite TV shows getting made. You know, putting my feet up on Fox Mulder's desk. You know, walking walking through Deep Space Nine. What other stuff? Been wandering around the sets of Babylon Five and. I think one of my fondest memories is, is is like sitting in Captain Janeway's chair on the bridge, the uh, bridge of Voyager, just kind of lounging around, you know, <laughs> and and then meeting some sort of great actors and really really terrific writers. Um, that was just that was so much fun. But what kind of I think in the end made me decide to make the decision was as much as journalism is great, it felt kind of a bit disposable to me because you would put all this effort and work into writing an article, and then like a kind of month later, it would be gone. Sure. You know, some people would read it and it was like, you know, and, and, and then that would be it. And I, I remember I had an experience where I was writing a lot of, at the same time I was writing about Japanese anime and comic books. And I remember being in a comic book store and talking with a guy about this particular Japanese manga artist. And the guy said, oh yeah, and he quoted my article. I'd written an article like two weeks earlier. And he quoted it back to me and he said, oh, you know, did you know that this guy wrote this, this and this? And I'm like, you know, I wrote that. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I wrote the article that you read, that you're quoting back to me. <laughs> 
And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I did read that magazine. He's like, oh, did you write that? And it was just like, I realized I'd, I'd made no impact on this guy. He's like, he just, just assimilated this thing I'd done. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, what I'm writing is just going out there into people's consciousness. And it's not, it's not really having, it's not really leaving an imprint. And I wanted to write something that had a bit of permanence to it. You know, I wanted to be able to walk into a bookstore and see my name on something and go, see that? I, I, that's me. I did that. You know, I guess you, you can call it vanity or ego. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to accept that. No, no. You know, what is that you like know, when you walk in the bookshop? and see your name up there man never gets old let me tell you you know <laughs> i mean i'm i'm like 55 books in at this point and i still get kind of i get a little giddy you know i've, I've got my box of copies of of the dark veil turned up just after christmas and i open them up and there's like you know a pile of hardbacks in there and i'm like yeah good job jim well done you know <laughs> really proud of it i feel like you know, a craftsman looking at a uh, carpenter looking at a chair they put together going, you know, that's good. Taking pride in my work. I'm really happy to see it. And then when I go into a bookstore and I see it sort of piled up there, I always kind of make sure that it's arranged nicely, you know, sort of <laughs> sit like, oh, just move that slightly to the side, do a little bit of guerrilla marketing there. I've okay. got a writer friend who's obsessed with searching charity shops for his books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you do that? Is that no, I, I, I occasionally do that. You know, I, I love secondhand books as well. I've got to be honest. I can't walk past a secondhand bookstore without going in and coming out with something, you know. And, yeah, so sometimes I'll go into a secondhand bookstore and I'll see my stuff. But I'm never sort of upset about that because I think, well, someone read that and, you know, enjoyed that story and now they're passing it on to somebody else. And, and a reader is a reader, right? I don't care if, if that book's been read by five or six different people and they read it, they t take it back to their local charity shop and someone else reads it and someone else reads it. I'm just happy to be read. And everyone who reads it is potentially a new fan that's going to check out your new stuff. So it's a good system. Yeah, that's my thinking, you know. So I, I do very frequently, I think maybe like every, every sort of two years or so, I put together a, a care package and I take it to my local library of sort of comp copies of my own books and I just give them to my local library and say, here you go. Here's a bunch of extra books that I've got lying around. Hopefully, you know, some people can read them. I like to do – there's a small way to help support my local sort of library service. That's lovely. Um, and get more people to read, you know, because, yeah, the, the worst thing to be as a writer is not to be read by people. How do you approach writing? Do you have like a regimented time, like I sit down at 9 a.m. or do you just wait till the muse strikes? I'm supposed to have a regimented structure. I'm not a great believer in the idea of the muse. You know, I, I, I don't have a lot of time for that, I've got to be honest. <laughs> I'm a, I, I consider myself a sort of blue-collar working class kind of punch your card, sit in your chair, arse on chair hands on keyboard you know that's that's kind of the way i feel about it i think if you're just kind of sitting out the window pining for for the muse to sort of like come and bring you something i'm like yeah you you, you can't work commercially you can't work realistically in that fashion <laughs> i don't think you know you have to sit down you have to write and i and i treat it like you know it is my day job i treat it like a nine to five day job as i sit down in my chair and i work for a few hours i take a lunch break work for a few more hours and then i clock off at the end of the day you know and, and some days, some days are easier than others. Some days, you know, the, the muse isn't at home and it's like grinding a piece of granite with your teeth as you're trying to sort of advance a piece of story and it just doesn't feel like it's working. And the next day you go back and go, that's garbage, chuck it away and start again. But that's part of the process. You know, I, I, I don't believe in writer's block. People say, well, what happens when you get blocked? I was like, well, there's no such thing. There's just, you know, you, you, if, you, if you can't write, you're doing something wrong. And that's maybe because maybe you haven't plotted out your story correctly or you're missing something. You're not motivated for a particular reason but you have to work through it because that's what you do if 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 it's your job right you, you don't plumbers don't get plumbers block you know right <laughs> well that's I mean, all they're there to fix 
Exactly right. Yeah. He's like, you know, you know, plumber doesn't come in and go like, no, oh, I can't plumb in a sink today. I just don't feel. I'm not feeling it. You know, <laughs> and it's the same way. You know, if you were a baker, right? You know, you go, oh, I can't finish baking this cake today. Here's here's a half baked cake. It's like no one wants that, right? It's just the same way with writing. It's a job. You know, it, it can be, I think of it more as craft rather than art. So, you know, I, I, I always sort of address it from that sort of point of view. And that's that's kind of worked for me. That's a good viewpoint to have. So what comes first for you when you're writing? Is it the plot or do you start with lines of dialogue? It's a mix of things, really. Is I often start with what I call like the kind of the idea soup stage, right? Where I think, okay, what kind of story do I want to tell? I have a vague kind of concept of the sort of themes and narrative ideas. And then I'll just start chucking stuff in and say, okay, well, what, what, what floats up to the top? What feels like a good idea? It's like, do I want to have... I want to have a car chase or do I want to have a gun battle in this scene? Do I want to have sort of like a romance? Do I want to have, you know, thrilling locations? Is what sort of texture of story do I want? And then I look at the sort of building blocks and I lay them out and I think, okay, well, what would work well for this kind of story? What would be fun for me to write? And just start moving stuff around and you find what connects and what doesn't connect. And, and gradually you'll start to kind of build the sort of spine of the story, the plot. And once I've got the basic plot line, then I can look at what characters I've got in that story and go, okay, well, how, how do these characters and their interactions and their personalities bounce off of that story in a realistic way that feels like how they would engage with it? And the story gradually starts to sort of like gather momentum and kind of like it, it sort of accretes around that spine. And I got, so I'm going through that process again and again, kind of revising and revising and revising until I've got uh, a workable outline. I and mean, then once I've got that, then I start sort of getting into the actual cutting of metal and, and writing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've got some writer friends that believe in the muse. And I kind of feel like that is a very romanticized view of the writer that maybe Hollywood has put onto us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you know, there's, I think it's, I think these, it's a bit of a toxic myth, I have to be honest, I think, because I think if you're just staring out the window, waiting for sort of inspiration to strike you, you're not engaging with your your capacity and your capability as a writer is the ability to tell a good story. If you've got that in you, it's already there. It doesn't come from an external source. You've got it inside you. And what you need is to kind of figure out how you reach in there and tap it and bring it out, sometimes kicking and screaming, right? But you've got to, you've got to really drag that sort of thing out. And, and the other toxic myth you get, which is the sort of the starving, tortured artist kind of thing, when that's not just <laughs> writers, right? You get that across a lot of different things, is the idea of, you know, you have to be sort of locked in sort of a garret, starving, before, you have to suffer before you can write something or you have to be an arsehole to people you know that's another horrible talking with you know the dickhead writer who treats his family <laughs> badly you know all of these things are terrible ideas right you can be a perfectly decent person and still be a good writer and i think the the sense that, that you have to have those sort of negative qualities in your life in order to tell a story i think is is just untrue how do you approach writing about locations you've not been to I try as, as much as i possibly can if i can go there and like walk the ground I will, because there's there's always something that you just you can't get quite as much through tour guides or you know YouTube videos that kind of thing. There's always a little element that you'll miss. I mean, a, a good example of this was when I was writing my third, was it my third Mark Day novel, or was it my fourth? I forget which one now. Is, is I was I was going to use Iceland as a location in one of my books, and originally the idea was is that the characters were going to stop off there, and there was going to be a small sort of incident take place, and then they were going to fly onto somewhere else. And and so I thought I'm going to go to Iceland for a week and just take a look around. And when I got out there, it was such an amazing place, and, and it really inspired me 
that I changed the entire middle of the book to make make it all take place in Iceland because it was just oh, wow. it just so cool, and there was just lots of stuff about it that was really interesting and and it really just fired me up as a writer. And I would never have got that if I hadn't actually, you know, got off the plane at Reykjavik and just started walking around and, and getting a feel for the place. So if I can, I go there. And if I can't, the next best thing is I find someone who's been there and just sort of like try and, you know, sponge up as much information about it as possible. So like a good example was one of the scenes in one of my books is uh, set in Mogadishu. And obviously I, I can't get sort of travel insurance to go to Somalia. <laughs> but I, I knew a couple of people who were smiling, who worked at my publishing company. And I said to them, you know, who, who'd grown up in that city. And I said, just tell me what it's like. You know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is it like to walk down the street in that city and just get a sense of it and just try and absorb as much of that as possible? I mean, you can you can virtually visit pretty much anywhere in the world these days, right? With with I love those sort of youtube videos you know that you get people just spend an hour walking around the streets of a city silently just carrying a camera around you know and you can get a sense for the layout of a place and you can hear the sounds and everything but you never get the you never get the smell yeah. you know you never get you never get the texture of what it's like to, you know the, what is, is it warm there is it cold there what's the street feel like under your feet and and these are the, these are the, what they call you know the telling details that's the really key thing is find the telling detail and you can the, the rest of the stuff will just write itself. So I think it's it, doing your research in that is, is very, very important. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I guess if you've never stepped on a beach, you wouldn't know what sand felt like. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you need I mean, to get on there. I mean, there's, I remember distinctly there's a conversation I had with some guys who were working on, uh, this is a few years back, it's a video game set in Bolivia. It was Ghost Recon Wildlands. The production team were a bunch of guys all based in France. And the the production lead was telling me, he said, you know, we worked for like a year developing this this version of like Bolivia where the game was going to take place. But no one had actually been to Bolivia. And when they finally got to this point, they said, right, you know, we're going to send a team out now. We're going to and we're going to do photo recons. You're going to go all over there, spend like two or three weeks in Bolivia, just going around sucking up the atmos. And he said when he got there, he said they realized that what they'd done was this kind of weird Disney Epcot Center version <laughs> of what Bolivia was actually like based on, you know, their kind of third hand versions of it. He's like, there's all these details, all these minor little details that they were missing. And he said, he went back and they said, we've got to start again because uh, this is just, this is not, this does, this is not what this place feels like. And we want it to be authentic. And they put all this energy into sort of making it feel true or as true as they could possibly make it. James, I've really enjoyed our chat today and I know you're busy, so I'll let you get on. I just want to remind people that Star Trek Picard the Dark Veil is available um, from the 5th of January from all good bookshops. That's absolutely right. And if anybody wants to kind of follow me on Twitter, you can find me at JM Swallow. I'm always happy to chat to people there. Or you can come along to my website, which is just jswallow.com. That pretty much contains your everything you need. That's a one-stop shop for everything about me and my writing. Excellent. I'll link to all of those down below. Awesome. Equipment used in the creation of this feature was purchased for a grant from Gray and the Paul Hamlin Foundation.